Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and this one is a special one. Charlie Engel is a world-class ultramarathon runner. He's run across the Sahara Desert, became a documentary narrated by Matt Damon. He's done Ironman competitions. He's run through jungles, volcanoes, mountains. He's a motivational speaker and author. He's spent time in federal prison. And he's a recovering addict, 25 years clean and sober. He is one of the best examples that if you can laugh at yourself, you can find a way to come out on top. And his story is like none you have ever heard, I guarantee it. This interview, I could have easily kept going for another hour, but you got to stop sometime, and who knows, maybe there can be a part two someday. Here it is, my conversation with Running Man author Charlie Engel. You know, Charlie, I, I, I hardly even know where to start with you because you have done so many different things, so many different accomplishments and, and life moments. But I, I think I want to go back to the beginning with you and to probably one of the earliest accomplishments that I read about, and that is running a five-minute mile when you were in grade eight. Man, what I wouldn't give to be that fast again. <laughs> that was so that was so easy, you know, in hindsight, you know, and, and anybody that's ever run, though, understands the... So I was like 12 years old, and I can remember distinctly that year. It's the first year I'd ever really run track, and and I, I was six feet tall, so I was basically the same height I am now, but I was about 50 pounds lighter. You know, I was you could barely see me if I stood sideways, but I could I could run, and it was it was fun, and I enjoyed the freedom of it, and the I had run from the time I was a kid, but I'd never run anything structured before. So racing was completely foreign to me. So in that first year, all I did was just run as hard as I possibly could <laughs> from the very start of every single race. And partway through the season, I figured out that there is a little strategy and you know, sprinting off the start line is not always the best way to go. So, but it was, it was, it was a good time. I mean, I, I broke five minutes and I, I did it actually a lot. And unfortunately, then I figured out in high school that girls like football players. And so I started to, you know, I started to put on some muscle and my times didn't slow down. I got faster, but relatively speaking, everybody else caught up to me and, and eventually passed me. So I, I should have stuck to running. Okay, I want to know, so for a guy who has run across the Sahara Desert and for someone who has an addictive personality as you, what were you like as a kid? Were you driving your parents up the wall or what was your personality like? Man, that's a good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that one, which is, which is uh, awesome. Um, what was I like? I mean, I think I was an only child, first of all, so it, made it, it, it meant that I had to do a lot of self-entertaining and I grew up in this very bohemian situation. So my mother, who was very young, 19 when I was born, was, I like to say that I was lovingly neglected when I was a kid. So, I mean, she was awesome. She was the, my hero. And, and yet I, I pretty much raised myself in, in the sense that I set my own bedtime and I sort of got up when I wanted. I liked school for the most part, so I, I was willing to get up and go to school. But, you know, as a kid, I was I was pretty um, just kind of 
free and, and uh, I, the free range kid idea comes to mind. I just sort of did my own thing. So I didn't drive them crazy. I would have driven them crazy if they were paying attention, but <laughs> they, they, they really weren't watching all that closely. And for the most part, I just kind of skated through. I, I figured out early on that making good grades was uh, got me better attention than making bad grades. And, and so I sorted that out. And once I found sports in seventh grade, man, I was just busy. I mean, my addictions didn't kick in until college when I actually once again had had freedom. I was that high school kid that played you know, six sports and produced a TV show in the morning at my school and was the, you know, president of this club and that club and class president. And I, I didn't have time to breathe, much less you know, smoke weed or get drunk. So I, I was actually a pretty straight kid back then. It wasn't until I got to college that I screwed all that up. <laughs> what was the TV show that you're producing at the time? So every morning in my high school, we had, it was a fairly like experimental high school, especially for the late seventies in North Carolina. And so they had a, um, a closed circuit TV system throughout the community, throughout the whole community. Mm -hmm. So every morning I was up at five and I would run and by six, I would be at the radio station picking up the AP wire. You know, of course, this is mm -hmm. this is there's no no smartphones, no computers. And so I'm going there to get the day's news from the previous day. And I would get to school. I'd spend half an hour actually writing about an eight minute show. And instead of like the morning announcements over the PA system, I got the chance to actually write, produce and perform a morning television show on the air in high school and it was I mean it was fantastic I, I have no I've never seen a tape of it and I don't know if one exists <laughs> so in my mind I was awesome I, I, I imagine in yeah. life it probably wasn't that great but you know but I, I like everybody else too at that age man so then I go to college 1980 and shortly thereafter ESPN pops up so of course Mm -hmm. and CNN and all this. And I decide, of course, that I want to be an on-air, you know, anchor person for one of those kind of places. But, you know, again, my, my college career was less than stellar. And those, those dreams kind of went by the wayside. But I really loved it. I, I, I loved the idea of performing. What else? Uh, you, you mentioned being you know, a multi-sport athlete, six sports or, or, or many sports. You mentioned the football already and, and, of course, running too. What else were you doing at the time? So I got to do some things that probably most people, A, wouldn't advise, but also you wouldn't be allowed to do now. So I was a good enough runner that the cross-country coach let me train on my own. And so I ran cross-country and ran the cross-country meets, which were on different mm -hmm. days than you know, the football game. So I, and the football coach would allow me to miss, it was like Tuesday afternoons was always cross country. And so, um, I would miss practice on that day for football, but the rest of my running, I would do myself. Um, I played basketball and I actually wrestled only one year. So that was absolutely awful. It was the number one, I was a terrible wrestler and being as tall and stringy as I was, but it taught me a lesson. I didn't want to do that. And then, uh, of course, in the spring at U.S. schools is baseball and track and field. And I actually only played one year of baseball, too. And I wasn't a particularly good player. But in high school, we actually had this amazing team 
And I went out for the team. I'd never, I'd never played baseball before in my life. And I went out for the team uh, because I thought we might win a state championship. And I just wanted to be part of it. And, and sure enough, we actually did. We had a couple of guys go straight to the pros. And, um, you know, I was just a, I was just an add-on player on that team at best. Yeah, but that was it. I, and I loved trying everything. Growing up with my mother, she wasn't a sports person. She loved to watch sports, but I didn't do anything, you know, as far as uh, participation. And then in seventh mm-hmm. grade, I moved in with my dad and everything changed. And he he was a big sports fan. So, of course, to try to please dad, I played everything. Hmm. Uh, your parents were the same city, different cities when you were growing up? Man, my dad was in California. My mom was in North Carolina. So by the time I was like at seven, I flew by myself across the country, uh, which again is just crazy to think of now. But most, <laughs> most flights then like that, you know, North Carolina, Raleigh, Durham to San Francisco were nonstop. Mm-hmm. Now it's all broken up with all these regional jets and, you know, it's it's hard to find nonstop flights. But back then, that was kind of what you did. And so, you know, my mom would put me on the plane and uh, my dad would pick me up in San Francisco. And we actually, several years in a row in the summer, I'd fly out and my dad would drive me back. So my my wanderlust began like really early. You know, I remember driving across the Mojave Desert in you know, California and Arizona and no air conditioning. We're in a, in a little triumph spitfire, you know, and my old man's driving, he's six, five and he's driving the car with his knees and drinking a beer. And it was, you know, it was, I mean, you know, it was 1970 at that point and things were just so, so different, but it, but it did, it imprinted on me and I, I never stopped wanting and still haven't stopped wanting to see the world. What do you think you got from from each of your parents? What you the traits that you got from your mom, or the or the things that you picked up from your dad, and you could see that now uh, the resemblances. Well, and uh, this is a little bit unfair to do this to you, but so my mother just passed away last week, so mm-hmm. I have spent a tremendous amount of time thinking about my mom lately, and actually, you know, struggling to write an obituary because she was such an amazing woman, but she was a writer and a. Um, an activist, uh, gay rights activist, civil rights activist. I mean, she she was a person for the downtrodden who really never never thought about money. I mean, she should have thought about it a little more probably, but it was like if she made a list of what was important in any decision she made, you know, money rarely made the top 10 as long as she had at least just enough of it. So I think mm-hmm. I, I think I did get my social conscience from my mother and you know my desire to change the world and to encourage people to look at the world they live in it's very complicated now as we all know with social media and everything else but my father on the other hand was more of a pragmatist you know he started at at 19 wanting to be like a civil rights attorney and I don't know what happened. You know, they got divorced and he took off and went to the army and went to Germany and he basically just disappeared from my life and for about five years. And by the time he came back, he was, you know, he was more money focused. And so I did learn that one does need to actually make a living, especially if you want to go do 
fun things. And so, you know, I think my dad gave me a, a little more of a um, straightforward viewpoint of the world and, and one that, you know, things have to be done. And my mom was, was all dreamer all the time and, and really just a loving, incredible person. Uh, I'm sorry for your loss, first of all. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so your mom's in North Carolina. Your dad's in California. How do you settle on UNC? Do you want to go to college there? Yeah, so my dad actually, they both went to Carolina. So they both attended college there, and I had a long history there. And uh, I was accepted, I'm happy to say, at a lot of other schools. And it was interesting, though. I just... I wanted to go to North Carolina and actually I wanted to play football and I I had an invitation to walk on. I wasn't good enough to be offered a scholarship, but I had an invitation to walk on and it was the school that was an hour down the road. And I I was not the guy I applied to schools in California and, and all over. But when push came to shove, I decided to sit on the safe choice, which is still, uh, um, while I love, I mean, I'm a Tar Heel through and through and I, I love my school and, it would not change that. I, I wish that I also could have experienced something different, either going to school in another country or certainly in another state. I even had a man, I had a crazy opportunity in the 70s that I turned down, I guess, technically in 1980, when I graduated from high school, I was offered an, a scholarship from North Carolina A&T to actually go play football there. And it's a traditionally African-American university here in North Carolina. And at the time, talking a little politics at the time, HEW, which is Health, Education and Welfare here in the U.S., had a lot of mandated quotas for black students to get into white universities. But the converse was true, too. Black Mm -hmm. universities actually needed a certain number of white students at that time to also meet their quotas. So it was... It was an interesting time, and part of me always regrets not taking that opportunity because I know culturally and from a worldview, it would have been a much riskier and in some ways far more interesting path to take, but I didn't choose that one. I went to to UNC, and, and, you know, I don't regret that for a second. When was your time at UNC relative to Michael Jordan's time? And Michael Jordan and I were like practically roommates. We were so tight. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I was there though. With I was there with Michael, and I was actually part of. So I broke my ankle playing basketball the first week mm-hmm. of my freshman year, and I never played any football. But I went out for the JV basketball team, and I made the team. And our current coach, Roy Williams, was actually the JV coach back then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I made the team. And this is 1981. I made the team, but I knew I was never going to play varsity basketball, not at Carolina. And so I was offered an opportunity to become a manager. And I became a a team manager because that was one path to potentially being on the varsity. But I did get this incredible opportunity to be around and on the court and actually play ball with Michael, with James Worthy, with Sam Perkins, with, you know, certainly some of the greatest Tar Heels and, and a couple of the greatest players of all time. So they were get out of here. And they were just incredible. They were just kids, man. They were just they were superstars, but they were kids, you know, both especially James Worthy and Michael Jordan were both just from small town North Carolina and 
two of the greatest, you know, top 50 players of all time. Obviously, Michael, arguably the, by many accounts, you know, the greatest player ever. But it was a, it was a trip. And he was, he was never any different than he is today. The most competitive human being I've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> he would not let you walk away from the ping pong table, the poker table, the bowling alley, anything he did, he wanted to win. So, and that, you know, I think that served him well in his career. So you're at UNC, and I think like many of us, uh, from being a standout in high school and your time before, you, you go to a bigger place and you realize the things that you excelled in before, suddenly you're finding it harder to stand out, um, being the quarterback of the team or things like that instance. How did, how did you respond to that, or how did that affect you? Yeah, well, so in my, in my book, I write about the fact that I, I thought for sure there'd be a banner, a Welcome Charlie banner when I got to college, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I was just that awesome in high school, right? I mean, that's, that was, and I didn't really feel that way, but that's, that's always my joke. I mean, I, I accomplished a lot in high school, but I get to Carolina, there's 4,000 other shiny new freshmen there who have the same or better credentials than I do. And I found out really quickly that I was uh, average, like average at best. And it struck me hard. You know, it really did. I mean, it was it was I did poorly in school right off the bat because I didn't know how to study. I'd been smart enough in high school to just kind of skate by and still be a you know top 10 in my class student. You get to college and they damn if they don't expect you to actually study and to turn in assignments on time and do things like that. I, I didn't understand. But I figured out very quickly in North Carolina in, in 1980, the drinking age was still 18. And I figured out very fast that I was an absolute brilliant all-American drinker. And I could, you know, I could drink with the best of them. And that became... Uh, unfortunately for me, you know, my maybe my, my my hobby to begin with and then my vocation later. And, you know, then it became the thing that sort of sustained me. And I spent, you know, I spent my years at Carolina in a alcohol and drug induced fog. The 80s were the cocaine decade. I don't know what this decade's probably the heroin decade we're in now. But back then, cocaine was just ubiquitous in certainly on a college campus and really in society in general. And, you know, I had lots of friends in college that could do a little bit and party and have some fun and actually go to bed and get up and go to class the next day. I was not that guy. And, you know, for me, once it started, it didn't end until, you know, I didn't have any more money or I was in trouble or, you know, passed out in some unfamiliar corner somewhere. How did it start for you? What was the uh, the introduction to it for you? Uh, you know, in, in in college, drinking was just, I mean, the introduction was just being in college. As for cocaine, you know, I did join a fraternity, and it certainly wasn't their fault, but that sort of an atmosphere made it super easy to be introduced to things. And it was as simple as we were on a road trip to another university up in Boone, North Carolina in the mountains. And, you know, the guy I was sitting next to just, you know, he pulls out this little vial of white powder and, and basically it was called a bullet. And he shows me, you know, he asks if I want some and I don't even know what it is. I'm like, 
mm-hmm. you know, what is it? And he tells me and then, you know, he does a hit and then he kind of shows me how and I do it. And, and frankly, I didn't get anything out of it that time. It was it was like, I don't see what the big deal is. The next time I did it, though, everything changed. And I did a couple of lines and it was like some, you know, super light switched on in my head and it didn't really switch off again for 10 years. Was it like the 4th of July going off inside your head at the time or, or what was the sensation? It was. I mean, in, the, in, the, in my book, I actually describe it as a Klieg light going on. So it's a super brilliant, bright light. And all of a sudden, you know, I had plans. I was going to, you know, I was going to make my father proud and make perfect grades and cure cancer and solve the world's problems. And that's what cocaine did. It like it, it lit me on fire and it cleared my mind. And, you know, it didn't see, it seemed like there was nothing I couldn't do. And then of course, you know, 20 minutes later, you need, you need more of it. And then it starts all over again. But, but with addiction, you know, my experience was that I spent, you know, I spent the next 10 years basically chasing that first experience and, and trying to match that initial feeling, which I've said quite often, I think most of us do in some way, shape or form in many aspects of our lives. You know, we, we have these interesting and cool first experiences and, and we try to replicate that and it's just not that simple. Yeah. Did your fraternity brothers clue in at some point that you were not the same as they were as, as far as being able to to use and then, you know, put to a side and, and remain productive or, or go about their, you know, yeah. the course of your regular life? They noticed. Eventually, everybody noticed. And I, I would just disappear for chunks of time. And, you know, I wasn't I wasn't alone. You know, we had 100 guys in the fraternity. And so there were there were a handful of us that were pretty much the same. And so we found each other and reinforced that behavior. And, uh, you know, and there was some fun had for a while until it wasn't. And, you know, and then college ended and, and I went out into the quote unquote real world and that behavior just continued for me. I didn't know how to leave it behind. Everybody else took their, you know, their entry level jobs or they went to grad school or they, they did whatever they were doing. And, you know, you ask about fraternity brothers, one of them, and, and I, I thank him for it still to this day, you know, he, he called my father after one particularly ugly binge of mine and, and really told him, you need to come get him because he's not going to make it. Like, he's not going to survive this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what happened. My dad came and, you know, scooped me up and took me out to Seattle where they were living and I just sort of disappeared for a very long time. And what what year of university would that have been for you? So for me, that would have been my, I mean, technically I, I nearly finished my junior year. So it mm-hmm. was, you know, pretty much the beginning of my last year. But I that first semester of my last year, I basically stopped going to class and, you know, stopped doing anything. At this point, were you seeing it as a problem ever or or were you still uh, convinced that, uh, you know, that you couldn't see what other people saw? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I knew, I knew how low and awful I felt at the end of a binge and getting up the next day and, 
And I mean, because I would stay up even at that point, I'd stay up three or four days at a time. And so, I mean, I would have had to have been crazy not to notice that, you know, that I did have a problem. But Oh, things are just so different. It's funny. I try to think back now. In the early 80s, you know, there wasn't any like campus club or system to, there was nowhere for me to go. Like right. the, today on a college campus, everybody enters college knowing you might still screw it up and you might be an addict and it might be a hard way to go. But you, you actually know, you're very aware that there's answers. You know, I just, I have two boys that were, you know, in college in recent years and, and, you know, you couldn't ignore all the signs that say, get help if you need it. Back then, there wasn't mm-hmm. any of that. You know, the only, the only, kind of the only thing said was, don't screw it up, you know, and if, if you, you know, if you don't go to class, there wasn't anybody to help, I guess. And if there was, I didn't know about it. And so for me, you know, I carried that on out into the, into my work life. And, you know, to balance my addiction, I basically spent, you know, I spent years overachieving in, in business. You know, I would find a way to be the top salesman at the fitness club or, you know, I sold cars for a while and was the top Toyota salesman in the United States one year. And I, you know, I found ways to compensate for the other things I was doing because my attitude was, I can't possibly be an addict if I'm the best salesman, if I can buy a house, if I can buy a car, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, maybe I, maybe I party too much, but as long as I'm taking care of business on this side, then what's the big deal? Right. So fast forwarding a little bit for, for when you were selling cars, but before that you move out West again with your dad and uh, you start running a Baskin Robbins uh, at West. Indeed. Uh, how did that go for you? Yeah, well, as I like to call it, I went to Sunday school, and thing, <laughs> um, and uh, learned how to make ice cream cakes, and you know, it was it was an experience to you know, my dad was thinking of trying to be a you know an ice cream magnet, and we would buy a bunch of franchises, and you know, basically let me run one of them, and you know, I I. I tried very hard to run it right into the ground and I just wasn't I wasn't capable of doing it you know I started dipping into the till but I would always put the money back like I was I was I would go buy drugs and I'd buy enough to have some to do and I'd sell the rest and I'd put the money back before morning and until eventually you know that didn't happen and Mm -hmm. You know, and it was, man, it was messed up. I mean, it was a, it was a terrible, awful way to be. And I, you know, I felt badly, you know, the vast majority of the time. And, and that, you know, in that, in that period of time is when I was like, all right, this is, you know, this really is a problem. When did it go from cocaine in powder form to then crack cocaine? You know, interestingly, that was a, it wasn't a conscious decision uh, because I was traveling and I'd, I'd started this new business. So out of the car business, I started a business in what was called at the time and still is paintless dent repair. And a lot of people know what it is, but it's, it's fixing cars without painting, fixing the dents in cars. So I, I formed a company and I started chasing hailstorms around not just the country, but the world. And what it allowed me was a tremendous amount of freedom and almost no accountability. And so I would get to a new city 
you know, Atlanta, Denver, Chicago, wherever I might go and Orlando. And one of the first things I would do, I'd figure out where the bad neighborhood was, you know, where that that neighborhood that I knew I could drive down and probably score something. And that's what I did. And one time in Denver, you know, I I pull up to somebody that's clearly dealing and I, you know, I'm looking for powder cocaine and they say no problem and they get in my car and before I know it they come back and it wasn't powder it was crack and I'm I like absolutely refused to do it I was like no I I you know there's no way I'm gonna do that I you know I always swore that I wouldn't and you know I remember that moment you know very clearly I mean I as I was saying there's no way I'll ever do this I don't want that I already knew I was going to, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that addict in the back of my mind was already taking control and saying, you know, just as one time, just as one time, because, you know, addicts are suckers for their inner addict. You know, that's the voice that gets listened to. And, you know, it's a very hard voice to resist. And so I, you know, on that particular occasion, I took my first hits of crack and and it's pretty much all I thought about for the next couple of years. So you mentioned uh, at the time you, you're doing uh, you know, paintless dent repair and the money is good from it and, and the danger that comes with that, with there's money to spend uh, for somebody with an addiction, you know, this is a very dangerous combination. How many times did you try to quit before it stuck for you? Well, sadly, I had a, I had a very not funny joke. I was like, Man, I can quit anytime. Quitting's easy. I've done it a hundred times. Right. <laughs> which is, you know, which obviously is is moronic if you think about it. And you know, so to answer your question, clearly though, I tried to quit. I really tried to quit probably 20 times before before it finally stuck. One of those times was in a full-blown 28 day treatment center. And, you know, I made it through that program and I learned a lot. I learned a tremendous amount. I also knew deep down that my inner addict was saying, this isn't the end, you know, this is just a, this is just a break, you know, and, and you got to get this under control and everything will be okay later. And, you know, I, I basically treated that time like um like a graduation almost so i treated that 28 days like like i would taking on a a hundred miler today you know i i'm like i wanted to be the best addict in treatment i wanted Mm -hmm. to ace the test i wanted to say the right things i wanted to mend the right fences i wanted to do all these things because i wanted my family to be happy and I wanted to be able to get a job and I was I just wasn't ready though to to really take command of this idea that I wanted to live a sober life so after that six months of sobriety that was when I really went just crazy and and was lucky to survive really the next year and a half what was what was that bottom for you that that rock bottom when I did finally quit yeah yeah um, it's pretty simple. Actually, my first son, Brett, was born in uh, May of 1992, and I was really fighting hard to stay sober at that point. But I, 
you know, I knew that I didn't want, I, I grew up in a household where, you know, with my dad, where, you know, alcohol was a very present part of our lives and, you know, not in a good way. And I knew I didn't want my kids to grow up in that kind of atmosphere. So I basically just took it for granted. I said, you know what, that's it. I'm done. No way that I'm going to do any more drugs after the birth of my son. And so sure enough, he's born and, you know, I, I'm sticking to this commitment, white knuckling it though. I'm not actually go, doing any treatment. I'm not doing anything. I'm just not using drugs. And um, my son's mom, my wife at the time, and, and my son came to visit me a couple of months after he was born. I was working on the road in Wichita, Kansas, and they came to visit and it was one of the best weeks of my life. You know, I had this little tiny baby, this two month old, tiny little thing. And it was the most love I'd ever felt in my life. And I had feelings I had no idea that I was capable of. And after that week, I took them to the airport and dropped them off and inexplicably drove straight to the hood and spent the next six days smoking crack and drinking and and killing myself. And. It was at the end of that binge, you know, walking, watching the police go through my car and bullet holes in my car and, and, you know, understanding that those bullet holes were put there by somebody trying to shoot me. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it sounds crazy to say it this way, but it really was like one of those moments like, huh, you know, this seems like a pretty good time to quit, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and of course it wasn't that simple, but it. Here's the thing, nobody else could save me. You know, I thought my son could actually be my savior. I thought he could stop me from being a drug addict. And the, the final dose of reality of, of understanding that there was no one but me that could actually make that happen is, is why it all changed. Hmm. Was that, that a scary moment thinking that you might not be around to to see your son grow up and seeing those bullet holes in your car yeah absolutely no i i mean i i look as an addict and any addict i don't want to speak for other addicts i shouldn't i shouldn't say that but my experience is most other addicts have experienced times when you know they were willing to die for their addiction like they reached a point where they just simply didn't give a shit and dying was just a reality not that they wanted to die although mm -hmm. i will say it's a fine line you know there were times and certainly moments instances where i was at such a low place that you know if you asked me in that moment if i wanted to die i probably would have said yes but you know i think it just is it, that moment for me made me realize that the, you know my death was imminent it was not some abstract thing floating around out there that might or might not happen. This was real, and either the drugs or another person were going to end my life. And if I didn't want that to be the case, then I better get my act together. Do you think we we miss out? And I say we, I guess collectively, as uh, you know, as a as a culture and a society. Do you think we we miss out on on humanizing people with addictions and and in forgetting that these are people who experience guilt and shame and all the all the range of emotions that everybody else does well i'll answer your question um 
maybe a little too provocatively, but you can't, you know, we put our addicts in jail and in prison in mm-hmm. this country. You know, we have almost no sympathy for addicts in general. Our our families do for us and certainly our circle of friends, but there is such a societal limit that is reached so quickly. So you're way more likely as a teenage or early 20s drug addict to end up in jail or prison than you are in a treatment center. And every single statistic known to man, other countries do it so much better, we can look at their stats. You know, there is such uh, empirical proof that, you know, every dollar spent on someone for treatment early on in their addiction Mm -hmm. will save society $10 later on because they're going to end up incarcerated. They're going to end up, you know, with a lifetime of misery. And so to answer your question, if that wasn't clear, I, I absolutely think that you know, society needs to stop with this tough on crime attitude towards addicts. Look, right. if you cross the line, you know, if you pull out a gun and go rob a liquor store, look, you're you're going to jail. You know, but if you're you're the average everyday run-of-the-mill drug addict, which is what most the vast majority of addicts are, you know, help. Even if even if it's not compassion that makes you help, fiscal responsibility should make society way more interested in helping that person. Even if they don't care about them as a human being, you know, just fiscal responsibility should make them say, okay, look, we got to give this guy or this girl a couple of chances before we throw them in jail. Because I got to tell you, nobody gets better in jail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how uh, grateful or lucky did you feel to have uh, reached a point where you were finally ready to embrace sobriety and it hadn't come at the expense of, of being landed behind bars or, or you know, ending up in, in a state where it did cost you your life? Man, that's a great question because I, I was so naive at the time still. You know, the world was so different. You know, you actually had to answer a telephone that was plugged into the wall in your house at that point still. <laughs> You know, I just had my 25 year clean and sober anniversary. And so it, it's it's hard to imagine because I think we all sort of superimpose all of that on what society is like today. And so right. just there's not all that. Um, I didn't actually know. Like I in college, I dealt drugs, but I, I, I sold it to friends. I wasn't out on the street corner or anything. So in my mind, I wasn't breaking the law. It didn't. It didn't like occur to me that I was actually doing something that was, you know, particularly illegal. I mean, certainly I wasn't stupid. I knew if I got caught with drugs, I, I could be in trouble. But I just didn't appreciate the danger that I was probably in, you know, both from, you know, from a legal perspective, but certainly from a physical perspective. I, in my 20s, man, I, I mean, I was Superman. And I think most 20 somethings you know, think that that's the case. Like, this is just something I'm doing now. You know, I got plenty of time, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I'll get my act together and I won't do this anymore. And, and months stretch into years and years to decades for a whole lot of people. And, or if they're lucky, they get decades. You know, a lot of them, of course, now with skyrocketing overdose rates in this country and, 
and a real lack of a plan. We're missing any kind of leadership in this country in, in any arena towards dealing with this problem. And it's a big ship. It's a, it's a luxury cruise, you know, or a luxury cruise ship that takes, you know, in this case, it'll take years to turn around. You know, there's no single policy that's all of a sudden going to change all of that. This is going to go mm. for so long. So anyway, my politics are showing. How did you feel in those first weeks, those first months of sobriety? Uh, you know, I was absolutely, as we say in, uh, in sobriety, I was a, a pink cloud guy for sure. You know, I, I wanted to, because I didn't know any better, <laughs> you know, I wanted to go pull all my drunk friends out of the bars and, you know, and show them this awesome new life that I had. And of course, mm. they all told me to piss off. And, you know, and I, and I finally, I had a great first sponsor was very, very lucky to have a, an old timer who'd been around for you know, many, many years. And he taught me the best lesson still that I, that I've ever learned in sobriety. And that lesson is, you know, it's written into our traditions, but it basically is this idea of attraction rather than promotion. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you want to give other people the opportunity to have the same joy and freedom that you do, then you just need to live. You just need to do your thing. You need to be. And if other people see you and they see your joy and happiness and they see the kind of life you're living and they find it interesting and better than theirs, because if they're an addict, they will see it and recognize it as a better existence, then they'll come to you. And they'll say, how do I get some of that? And when mm -hmm. that happens, then all the rules are off. But the second I start a sentence with the words, you know, unprompted or, or unasked, if I start a sentence with, here's what you should do, I, right. know, I know I've blown it. Because nobody wants to hear that. So in those first years, what I finally figured, it took me a little while, but what I figured out is I just needed to mind my own business gain back the trust of the people around me, family and friends, mm -hmm. because nobody trusted me, rightfully so. Mm -hmm. And time would, you know, would heal those wounds and, and close those gaps. And if I just did that, then everything would be okay. Had, had you maintained that, that connection with your family uh, and close friends throughout those years? Uh, or was it, a, was it a reconnecting process for you with some people? You know, I was an aloof person in general, and and so yes, I maintained a lot of friendships and close relationships with family, but pretty much on my terms. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and very close with my mother always, and my mom always knew what was going on, and she was the most worried about me. And you know, I told her the truth. I, at least I told her as much truth as I understood about myself because you know, I didn't, I really didn't know very much. You know, I, I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing most of the time. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why I couldn't go to a freaking bar and have two beers. I just didn't understand it. Even though a hundred straight times I would go in there for two beers and leave after having 20 and and still the dream lived on <laughs> you know like somehow mm -hmm. i was magically going to figure it out and uh my, my mom was the only one who really 
I think understood that my my father was a lot harder and, and more judgmental and, and I, I steered clear of him for the most part unless I unless I was doing well you know and then I wanted his approval if I could get it um, you know but generally speaking I, I kept cut touch with a lot of people I mean I'm I'm a social person and I, I like I like my old friends and it has been nice through the years for many of them to see both my my struggles and my and my triumphs and and to hear them remind me of what I was like back then because I still need that reminder every once in a while that in case in case that little voice keeps you know finding its way back into my brain telling me that you know I can still have a couple of beers mm-hmm. was it a 12 step program for you or or what was it that did the trick yeah so when I was in Wichita and I finally made the decision to get sober after that six day binge with somebody shooting at me. You know, really I got up the next morning, I did two things. That night, that same night, I went to an AA meeting. There was no more treatment center or whatever. There was nobody to pay for it and whatever. And I knew the answer. I always say that, you know, the treatment center absolutely screwed up my using because the first time I went to treatment, you know, I would say, I don't know what to do. How do I get out of this? Oh my God, my life is so bad. You know, how am I going to get past this? Well, then I go to treatment and then I actually know the answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, you mean if I just do these things and I take these steps and I, and I, I follow people who've been successful before me, then I might be successful. And so after that binge in Wichita, you know, I knew what to do. And so I went to a meeting that night and I got up the next morning and I put on my running shoes and I went for a run, you know, and I threw up half a dozen times in the bushes and in the shower and in front of little children getting out of their minivan and (laughs) saying, gross, (laughs) what's wrong with that man? You know, and, and, uh, and that's what I did every day for the next three years. I went to a meeting every day and I went to, you know, I put my running shoes on every day and, I trusted my sponsor and when he told me that if I just kept doing that every day that I would have a chance to build an actual life and one that you know filled with feelings and potentially with you know love and affection and you know children that actually liked me and and all of that and and those were you know part of his promises to me and, and in the in the program of AA of course we have something called the promises and that's part of that that if you if you stick around long enough and you do the things that other people do some people have a problem with with 12 step recovery you know and i understand it and i think my opinion is those people are misguided in the fact that they think there are actual rules it, it's Everything about the program is a suggestion. It's it's up to me to make it work or to, you know, I'm not a religious person. So AA uses the word God, you know, quite often. But to me, it's not mm-hmm. God. It's not a Baptist or Catholic or, you know, Islamic God. It's, it's just, uh, you know, kind of this spiritual being out there that, um, that I get to talk to when I go run. <laughs> and... You know, and people make the mistake of, of, and I think it's because they're resistant to being told what to do. Addicts don't like to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. And I finally found my way into understanding that it was up to me to figure out how to do this program. You've said before that drugs and alcohol had been your way out. 
and that running was going to be your way through. Uh, tell me about what running has done for you. Wow, man, it's done everything for me. It, it's given me freedom. You know, when I, in those first few years, I got the question occasionally from people who, who I would say didn't have my best interest at heart, but who would say, you know, didn't you just switch addictions? And that's, runners get that all the time. Sober, sober mm -hmm. runners these days, I still hear it. You know, and it's it's just nonsense because for me and what people don't understand, addiction was all about hiding. It was about being invisible and feeling nothing. Mm -hmm. Running is all about feeling everything. You can't you can't hide when you're running an ultra marathon. Who you are is completely turned inside out and revealed for anybody that's around you to see. So there is no hiding. So am I addicted to running? Absolutely. But it's not a, you know, I don't forget where I parked my car or if I do, it's not because I was, you know, shit faced the night before, you know, mm -hmm. I don't spend all the money in my bank account. I don't, you know, I don't stand up my friends and family and not show up for six days uh, because I've gone out for a run. Well, wait a minute. Have I done that? <laughs> Maybe I've done that one, but no, I'm just kidding. But they know where I am at least. And, and, and that's the difference. And it, and it frees me. It frees my mind. For me personally, AA was not enough. I needed the combination of a really strong physical outlet. And what I learned was, after running through more than 40 countries at this point, what I learned was seeing the world from the soles of my feet is so much more satisfying and meaningful than seeing it from, you know, the passenger seat in a, in a tour bus. And that's what running has done for me. It's given me a relatable way to see the world because I like going to Africa and South America and places, communities where maybe they don't have what we have here. And when you run into a small town or village, instead of driving into it in a Range Rover, you're treated differently. And you, you actually get this opportunity to be part of the community if you want to be. So that's what running has done for me. It's allowed me, you know, to see the world outside of myself, but through pushing myself physically, getting a chance to know myself better. Uh, I know what you mean by that feeling of being welcomed into a place. Uh, having traveled by bicycle, uh, I know very much the feeling of being treated as if you're a guest of somebody rather than if you're driving through town and people looking out for you, making sure you're safe and, and being taken care of. It's a, it's a really special feeling. Yeah, well, the world, the world relates to running, especially the third world. You know, they relate to running and to cycling because generally speaking, that's the only ways they have to get around. The vast majority of this planet doesn't actually own a car. You know, we all lose sight of that, you know, because our biggest problem is, you know, whether our car breaks down or if there's traffic. Right, or the price of gas on every yeah, day. Yeah, the price of gas. And the rest of the <laughs> world, you know, the rest of the world's on foot anyway or riding bikes and so when you go into those places and you, you do it, you know, Americans have a bad rap, of course, for going to places and trying to Americanize it. You know, they, they want to go there and find America. And I, I, I do consider myself a, an ambassador of sorts. And I try to, 
I try to go to foreign countries and take in as much of, of their culture as possible and be as much like them as I possibly can to assimilate for at least a short period of time. Because otherwise, why, why now would I go there? If I, want, if I want America in a foreign country, why would I ever leave here? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. You have uh, one of the most improbable, I think, stories of, of getting involved in ultramarathons starting in Brisbane. I would love to hear it, it told from you. Yeah, wow. It's not one of my brighter moments, but, um, <laughs> you know, I was that dude. I'd run already dozens and dozens of marathons by that point. I was a few years sober and, you know, I thought I would be and I would be happy being that old guy at 90 years old running his 280th marathon, probably bent over crooked at the side and and mm -hmm. taken eight hours to finish the race. Like that was fine with me. I was happy with that. But life had other plans. I, I went to Australia and I, I was there for work uh, chasing a hailstorm, actually a big hailstorm there. And you know, the first thing I did when I went to another country is I would join a, or I would, I would find, not join, but I'd find a running club and I would find an AA meeting. And that's what I did there in Brisbane. And I finished a run one day with a group at a running club and we went into the store afterwards and there was a little notice on the wall for a 5k for the upcoming weekend. And I ripped off the little banner with the directions on it. Cause again, don't forget, we don't have Google at this point. So there's no mm -hmm. There's no GPS or Google Maps, you know, you have to actually have printed, written directions. And so I, I tear these off and that Saturday morning I get up in the middle of the night and I start driving out to where this race was. And, you know, when I get there and I, there's, I have an adventure getting there, but I'll, I'll give you the slightly truncated story. But I, I have the adventure getting there. I run over a, a kangaroo with my car and he's still okay, I tell myself. And, you know, I get to the start line, I go up and get my number and I'm pinning it on. And, you know, I'm listening to these guys close to me talk about how hot it's going to be that day and how they hope they can finish before dark. I'm like, mm -hmm. Jesus, you know, this is a 5K. What are they going to do? Crawl? You know, <laughs> and I'm, I start laughing and one of them asks me, he's like, so, you know, mate, have you ever done a 50K before? And I'm like, no, why? <laughs> and uh you know and i walk back up to the table and and i'm like hey do you, do you have a do you have a map of the course and sure enough it's like it says 52k actually it's 52k and it's written everywhere 52k 52k <laughs> it's on my race number it's on a banner it's on the race direction it's on everything it just it never occurred to me that anybody would ever run farther than a marathon. And I, I, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why anybody would do that. But, you know, ultimately I'd driven hours and, and run over Bambi of Australia. And I, I decided that I would do part of this race because it was a loop course. I was going to do one loop instead of three. And I do that loop and, and I end up finishing that loop in the top 10. And, but I'm quitting. Like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And um, the cute girl from behind the uh, checkout counter comes up and says, you're continuing, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, <laughs> because we say stupid things like that guys do. And and I do continue on and, and I finished the second loop and I realized that 
I have an opportunity here. Something changed. You know, I finished that second loop and I was like in fifth place. And I just decided in that moment, sunburned and chafed and blistered, that that I was going to finish this thing. And so I'd go out for the last loop and I come up to the finish line and, you know, I'd run farther than I'd ever run before in my life. And I, I had shown up that day intending to run a 5K and I'd run 52K and I ended up actually winning the race. And it was just this surreal experience and it changed everything. It changed everything because after that, all I cared about was figuring out exactly how far I could go. <laughs> Yeah, screw the 5Ks. Let's run across the Sahara Desert. Yeah. <laughs> what what compels somebody to uh, to do that? I mean, you did that uh, starting in 2006, spending four months running across the Sahara. Where did you get that in your, in your head? You know, it was really the culmination, though, of many years. You know, I, I really did. I, I started doing races of hundreds of miles and running across jungles and deserts. And I just... You know, uh, with a friend of mine who ended up running across this era with me, I, I, we came up with this idea of, of sort of wondering, uh, Ray Zahab, Canadian guy, actually, and, and he's the one who blurted out the bad idea to begin with, and I'm the one that pursued it. And I, I you know, the why was as simple as no one had ever done it before. And there are very few firsts in the endurance world, you know, that are left anymore. And it gave us this incredible opportunity to see if we could do something that had never been done. And in the meantime, you know, Matt Damon produced a film and we ended up raising more than $6 million for clean water and co-founded H2O Africa, which today has morphed into water.org. And anybody that follows Matt Damon can see that he's still, you know, really involved. And so in that case, we did something because we wanted to do it, but it ultimately led to a greater good for each of us individually, but for the, for the world as a whole. Take me into those four months, if you can, of, of you know, a particular moment in time as you're running across the, the vastness and the bleakness of this desert and what you're feeling. Is there a moment of, geez, what did I get myself into at any time? Oh, yeah. About a thousand <laughs> of those, you know. But I, I, you know, I would say that, so like after the first week, the first week was hell. We, we basically dove down into the abyss and it seemed like we would never get out of it. And we, we were injured and sick. And, you know, Ray and Kevin in particular, my co-runners were really having a lot of problems. We had logistical problems. We got lost. We ran out of food and water. Everything that could go wrong went wrong in that first week. And I, I actually, ha what I did was I took the lessons of AA. I took the lessons of sobriety and said that, okay, I need to approach this differently. And I need to stop worrying about getting to Egypt because I'm not even going to make it to the next country. Mm -hmm. And on that next day, I, I got up and all I thought about was running a marathon in the morning. And I got to lunch and took a break and had a bite to eat and got up in the afternoon and ran another marathon. And that's all I thought about. And went to bed that night on my little thin foam mat and stared up at a, you know, a million stars in the sky because there wasn't a, an electric light, you know, for a thousand miles. And, and I went to sleep and then I got up the next day and I did it again. And by focusing on the little things, 
and and each day and each even little section we you know we slowly made our way across the desert and we found our rhythm and it despite all the times when it seemed like there was no way we would succeed including being you know until we, three days before we got there we were not granted permission to go to libya and so we were running all this way thousands of kilometers not knowing if we were even going to be allowed to continue and that was very hard. You know, that was the hardest part was mentally worrying about whether or not this run was going to end, not because of something that we did, but but rather, you know, just simply by politics, basically not being allowed to continue. Bolivia actually agreed to let us in, I think, because they didn't know what else to do with us. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think they thought we would actually keep going. And we were, we were essentially showing up at the border as uninvited guests and... I mean, look, I always said, though, if they turned us away, you know, if I got to that border and they turned us away, I could live with that. I would have gone as far as I could possibly go and and not another step. But I wasn't going to quit before then just on the based on the knowledge that we might not be able to get in. I think people do that too often. They assume the outcome and pull the plug on things, life, relationships, jobs, runs, sobriety. And, you know, you don't know the outcome. It's got to keep moving forward. As you're crossing this desert, how far, how many, you know, how many hours or, or how long is the period of time between seeing people that are outside of your immediate crew? Oh, man, we would go days at a time without seeing anyone. And, and when we would see people very often, it would just be, you know, nomadic Tuaregs, you know, the native people of the Sahara. We would go through stretches where we would hit a lot of villages if, if, if we were on, you know, roads, what passed for roads, that was rare. But generally speaking, I was taking a bearing on a compass and we were going straight. So, you know, we were we were heading east. And if east took us through a village and that was fine, if it didn't, then our, our we had a wonderful tour guide, Mohammed Iksa, and he would he would disappear sometimes for a day and magically show up with food and water and everything we needed. And I had no idea where he would go, but he would just like pull it out of the desert. But we would go a lot of days without seeing anyone. And those were actually, I, I enjoyed going through the villages and, and interacting with people, but man, it was awesome to be out there with nothing and no one and no phone and no, you know, nothing that is, considered a modern convenience and it, it was as it should be uh, i think we'd agree to disagree on that one <laughs> it's not not a common person not every person that uh, that uh, finds it awesome to be so isolated like that what, what are you doing uh when, when you have to go to the bathroom you just drop in right there as you're as you're running and then and then continue on or what do you yeah, well, what are your the, options um, yeah after the after the run was over one of the first talks i gave was to uh, a friend's uh, first grade class and that was the only question that they asked me after I talked was, where did you go to the bathroom? <laughs> like, I'm like, it was the world's biggest sandbox, you know? Right. So dig a hole, go, cover it up, move on, you know? <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was actually very simple. It was all very freeing. You know, there's nothing like, I think I, 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 would, I would say that anybody that travels, there's this panic we all have over not being in contact and not having our cell phone and whatever. But if you go to a place where there is no coverage and it's simply not an option, it takes a day or two. But if you can just let those couple of days pass without having a panic attack, it's fascinating what happens when you disconnect and when you just 
allow yourself to be somewhere and and be fully present in that place. You go through the depths of addiction. You get your life back on track. Uh, you run across the Sahara, and then when you think you've 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 reached all these heights, you end up in prison. What was that period like for you? Yeah, that was that was a those were good times. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, it was terrible. It was awful. It was, it was, it was unfair. It was unjust, but I, I actually am able to keep it in perspective now. And, and I now realize, I mean, I was the most, I was the most fully prepared person maybe ever to go to prison. And what I mean by that is I was 19 years clean and sober. I have run a hell of a lot of hard miles, including, you know, across the Sahara desert. And I understood the importance importance of one day at a time, like for real. Mm -hmm. So when I, you know, when I went to prison and, and just or unjust, fair or unfair, whatever anyone thinks, you know, I had to approach it in this, in this way and of making the best out of it and taking it one day at a time and being open to a new experience. One, I certainly never would have chosen for myself, but I went in there and I, I followed the rule I talked about a little while ago, attraction rather than promotion. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't going to walk up to, you know, the biggest guy there and say, hey, man, you look like you could drop a few pounds. Why don't you come run with me? Mm -hmm. You know, that would not have been advisable. But, you know, I started to run. I taught addiction recovery classes. I, I had a little workout group and, you know, I made the most of the experience and it was actually fantastic in, in many, many ways. Did, uh, did anybody leave an impression on you after that time was over? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm going to – I don't know if this steers clear of politics. And I was going to say I'm going to try to steer clear. I'm actually not going to. You know, I was in there with tons of guys, in particular black guys, who, you know, were treated unbelievably badly by the justice system and who were given – incredibly long sentences for, you know, 20 or 25 years for tiny amounts of crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was certainly hard for me not to look at them and think that easily could have been me. Uh, but in general, I was the white guy driving around the neighborhoods and back in my, in my using days and not one time I never got stopped, not once. And, you know, it's just not the way it works. You know, I was I was lucky, I guess, but you know, I'm not sure of all the meanings behind that. So what I learned more than anything was the yeah, a lot of people left impressions on me because the vast majority of what was in there were just very average people and a whole lot of drug addicts who, you know, got caught buying weed from the wrong person and, you know, end up with some conspiracy charge and 15 years of prison and uh it it was most of what i learned is it was nonsense and it was you know it was criminal college you know i learned more about crime i mean if i ever actually wanted to learn how to actually commit a crime prison's the place to go <laughs> you know because it's it's there's no rehabilitation there's nothing good about it and you know i always say it's what I don't understand about it. Society has, it doesn't, still doesn't get it. You know, like who would, everybody's going to, 98% of the people that are in prison, or maybe it's 96, something like that, are going to get out mm -hmm. someday. So who would you rather have next to you living as a neighbor? 
you know, the guy who got his college degree while he was in prison and learned a, a vocation or a skill, took classes, you know, was given opportunities, or the guy that was basically got the beat down every single day by staff and by, you know, just the system in general, and he gets out angry and without a single skill and ultimately just ends up on the public dole for the rest of his life. You know, society gets to pay for him forever because he, he, he can't do anything, can't get a job, can't vote, can't do anything. It's so it's so backwards. So if I was there for any reason, you know, some other greater reason, it was because I needed to see the absurdity. Are there people that belong in prison? Absolutely. There's a lot of dangerous people. And that's what prison was made for. That's what jail was made for. You know, uh, Jim Webb, who was a senator from Virginia, famously said, and I love this saying, you know, prison is for people we're, you know, we're afraid of, not people that we're mad at. Mm. And, you know, and, and everybody where I was was just, you know, was just people that society was mad at and decided to just throw them away. So, right. you know, it, it needs to change. It's costing us a fortune in both, you know, human means and certainly in, in dollars. And we talked earlier about, you know, humanizing uh, people who deal with addictions. I imagine that certainly was a humanizing process for you in, in seeing uh, what the inside of a, of a prison looked like and the people who, who populate it. Yeah, well, in federal prison, there's no addiction treatment, zero. Mm -hmm. You get nothing. You get you get addiction. You get drug education. So if you get a 20 year sentence in year 18, you're eligible to get drug education, which is anything like treatment. It's basically you suck. You're a drain on society. Don't do that anymore. You know, is is essentially what you learn. And right, and that's called rehabilitation. Right, exactly. And, you know, if you take that class, you can get six months off your sentence. And it's just, again, it's just prison itself is punishment. Being in prison is punishment. What happens to you in prison is not supposed to be punishment. It's not the way it was ever designed. It doesn't work for society. And again, I'm not talking about the dangerous. I'm not talking about murderers or rapists or armed robbers even. You pull a gun on somebody or physically threaten them in some way look that's not okay whether you're high or not you know and there are some people that society needs to be protected from but we need to find a different way i mean clearly we're, we're at record numbers of people in prison and look at the addiction problem in this country is it solved not only is it not solved it's skyrocketing right now so exactly what have we accomplished by throwing, we're just going to build a bunch more prisons and keep putting people there. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's idiotic and it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, maybe someday somebody with some power will, or society will figure out that this isn't the way to handle it. You've uh, mentioned in, in other writing and in speaking that uh, humor has, has been a big thing for you. If you could think about how, you've had that ability to laugh in, in the grimmest of circumstances to be able to endure and survive and even enjoy almost anything. Uh, can you tell me about that? Man, humor is the humor has been my, my other savior other than running. And I, actually humor works for me in running too, because I don't, 
despite what people might see from the outside, I don't take it seriously. And that doesn't mean that I don't train hard. It doesn't mean I want I don't want to do my best because of course I do when I do a race or when I'm taking on an expedition. But man, this is all just fun and games. I'm not the greatest runner in the world. If I got a choice to be the greatest runner in the world or the funniest guy, I would much rather be the funniest guy. <laughs> um, and, and when in fact, when I got married, I, I told my wife she gets to be the beautiful one and the uh, artistic one, the smart one, all of those things. But I get to be the funny one. Like she doesn't get that. <laughs> and she reluctantly agreed because she, she may actually be funnier than me. But I, I think what it is, is I certainly I deflect. I've used humor as a tool, especially as an addict, to deflect serious situations. So that's not always a good thing, but it was my a coping mechanism of sorts. But I love wordplay. I love to laugh. I love to make fun of, you know, myself in particular. I try with those people closest to me to remind them that if I'm picking on them, it's because I love them. And hopefully they they're OK with that. And it I don't know. It's just it just doesn't matter what happens to us in life. It just doesn't matter. All that matters is what we do about it and how we approach it. You know, anything can be good or bad. And I don't mean that to be cliche. I've experienced it for myself, you know, and anything can be good or bad. My my addiction, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, give me a pill right now and I could be, uh, you know, I could drink like a normal person. Why in the hell would I want to do that? You know, first of all, I never saw any real benefit in that. But but secondly, I, I would never want to lose the addict part of me because it's all the best parts of me. You know, if I'm not drinking and using, it's the thing that's made me successful in some things. It's the thing that's made me, you know, good at some things. And it's given me drive and determination and quirkiness and humor. And, you know, you can only throw up on your shoes so many freaking times and not laugh about it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I learned early on that that if you're, you know, if you're not laughing at yourself, then, you know, somewhere you've decided that that, that life just isn't any fun. And, you know, I always want it to be, it doesn't always have to be fun, but I want it to be, uh, I want to appreciate it as I'm living it and not just look back at it and tell stories. I don't even like telling, you know, my wife gives me a hard time because I don't like telling stories about stuff that I've done. You know, I'm way more interested in, in talking about what's coming up next. I mean, whatever it might be, even if it's, you know, tomorrow's run, you know, whatever, because I'm a, I like to look forward. I understand the importance of looking back and I always like, I don't dislike talking about it, but I want to go forward. If I could ask you lastly, what is uh, forward for you? Yeah, you know, I'm always looking for some new adventure and there's one I've been talking about for a long time that, you know, hopefully will come to fruition in the next couple of years. And it's, it's, you know, I've gone from a lot of low points in my life to a lot of highs. So you know, I've I've talked for years about going from the lowest place on the planet to the highest point. And, you know, even doing that on every continent. And I've even talked about doing it on in every state in the United States. And there's some some symmetry and obviously the uh, 
you know, the analogy is pretty easy to find that, you know, we all go through deep lows in our lives and we strive to, to, to reach those highs again. And for me, it's kind of, you know, it's my daily goal. It's my weekly, monthly and yearly goal. You know, it's what I want to do is to keep, I don't want to stop trying things. And sometimes I try them and they fail. And, and so I might be in that low point again, but that just gives me the opportunity to try again. Charlie, thank you so much for sharing your story. I appreciate it. It was great. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, Martin. So thanks for having me. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Charlie, head to his website, charlieangle.com, and check out his book, Running Man. The paperback version just came out. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and subscribe. It's on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Player.fm. You can also help me out by spreading the love. Pass it on to someone else. Let somebody else hear about the show. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.